Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we're looking at a global trend that goes well beyond my normal terrain of world politics. The subject's humanity's relationship with animals and the risk that the modern world poses to many species that share our planet. My guest is Henry Mance, an FT colleague who's just published an excellent new book, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. To chart the changing relationship between humans and animals, Henry visited factory farms, worked in an abattoir, and also spoke to the scientists, philosophers, and historians who are trying to make sense of mankind's evolving relationship with the natural world. So is the relationship between man and animals changing in a fundamental way? After crossing the Mara River, the herds follow the seasonal rains and head south to the... The wildlife films of David Attenborough are watched all over the world. But David Attenborough himself, now in his 90s, is increasingly outspoken about the threat of mass extinction of animal species. Over the course of my life, I've encountered some of the world's most remarkable species of animals. Only now do I realise just how lucky I've been. Many of these wonders seem set to disappear forever. It's not just the fate of wild animals that's exciting growing concern, even despair. The impact of factory farming on the environment and on the welfare of animals is also growing in salience as a social and political issue. When I was growing up, vegetarians themselves were a pretty rare species, and I don't think I ever met a vegan. But things are changing. When I go to my local supermarket now, there are aisles dedicated to vegetarian and vegan food. Just this week, 11 Madison Park, one of New York's most famous restaurants, which boasts the coveted three Michelin stars, announced that it's converting to an entirely vegan menu. Its owner, Daniel Hum, explained his thinking to Guy Raz of America's National Public Radio. There has been so much change, and I think therefore it will change the restaurant. I think we've all been able to take a step back and sort of reevaluate, and in a way maybe be a little bit more thoughtful also about the impact to our surroundings and the way we have sourced our food, the way we're consuming our food, the way we eat meat, it is not sustainable. Still, the conversion of a single New York restaurant, no matter how prestigious, is not going to have much of an impact on the economic and demographic trends that are harming animals. In his book, Henry Mance argues that love for animals is one of Western society's core values. But he also argues that for non-human animals... These years are quite possibly the worst time to be alive ever. When I began our conversation, I asked him to justify that very bleak statement. It's two dynamics, really. The first is livestock farming and the sheer number of animals we farm these days 
and also the ways in which we farm them. So chickens, dairy cows, pigs are all kept in conditions that would have been very hard to imagine in the 19th century, the intensification of agriculture, particularly since the Second World War. And the other dynamic going on is the loss of wild spaces, the loss of natural habitats, which means that an estimated 1 million species are at risk of extinction, and that even animals that aren't really at risk of extinction have lost their natural range, finding it harder to find a a place really on our planet. And that's before really the full effects of climate change are seen, which will add a, you know, a very serious and an unknown dynamic to the life chances of other species. Do you see any chance or any signs that there is a change in human mentality, given this is being driven by humans, that may alter the situation? Part of the point of the book, and one of the things I try to make very clear is that I'm not trying to change people's values. I mean, people already feel incredibly strongly about animals. They love animals. We spend huge amounts of money on our pets. We love Attenborough documentaries. We love looking at cat videos. In fact, that was sort of, for me, the golden age of the internet was when it was really cat videos everywhere and, you know, pandas rolling down at the Washington Zoo and and all these things. So we already think we live in a world where to love animals is an incredibly important thing. And you see it, politicians adopting puppies, whether it's Emmanuel Macron, Boris Johnson, Joe Biden, you know, that that's a way of showing you're a great human is to extend love and charity to animals. The problem is that we don't follow through in all our actions. So I think if people were to look at the way animals were farmed, and were to think about what that experience must be like, then they wouldn't be comfortable eating in the way they do. If people were to really question what animals, what wild animals their children will grow up in, in the way that we've been able to grow up knowing that there are elephants doing okay in parts of Africa and indeed Asia, or, you know, lions doing okay in parts of Africa, then I think if we were to think, hold on, the Amazon rainforest is really at risk of dieback, or Africa's natural habitats are going to be at real risk this century from the expansion of livestock farming and agriculture, unless we do something... I think we would be very uncomfortable with the path we're on if we stopped to think about it. I mean, I get the impression, although it may be a a rich world phenomenon, that a lot of people are aware of that, but they're sort of averting their eyes because they don't want to follow through and make the kind of choices that actually you have made, but I haven't made, for example. I think that's undoubtedly true. And, you know, there's been research on this before about how people justify eating meat. And there's sort of great research that if you describe an animal as edible or as an animal that is regularly eaten, then people will lower their estimates of the animal's intelligence. So in other words, that we kind of change our perception of the animal depending on whether we eat it. And of course, you know, chickens are not stupid. Dairy cows have social lives. Pigs are incredibly curious and would love to be rooting around in the soil. But in many places, they're kept inside on concrete floors in rather ghastly sheds, sort of with horrible atmospheres from their own feces. I think one of the things I say in the book is that, you know, I gave up meat actually after reading Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens book, which has a few short pages saying industrial agriculture is a, is a rather horrid phenomenon. Well, he says, he says it's stronger than that, doesn't he? He more or less says it's going to be remembered as one of the greatest crimes committed by humanity. Um, indeed. And he himself is vegan. And I, when I gave up meat, I have to say that I had a feeling not of deprivation, but of satisfaction, of feeling, you know what? I feel happier where my food comes from. And that outweighs the taste of beef and the taste of fish, whatever it might be. Now, 
I w- would also say to people who are thinking of giving up that you make that change in small steps. You know, you start choosing vegetarian options, start choosing vegan options when you're in restaurants. And gradually you find you don't miss it. You start cooking with new ingredients and you feel you're okay. And so you don't have to jump in at the deep end. But I really think that our society needs to change very radically how it eats because we have a huge population rise forecast. We're already, you know, in desperate need of protecting rainforests around the world, grasslands around the world. This is unsustainable. And the balance is shifting, but it's not shifting fast enough. I mean, you're talking about 1% or 2% or or maybe 5% of the population being vegetarian in, in most Western countries. And I think you observe in the book that in America, there are more ex-vegetarians than vegetarians. Yeah, yeah. And of course, one of the difficult things is that if you're the odd one out, it's hard to sustain. You know, you're constantly, you can be constantly bombarded with questions about, would well, you miss this? You know, how do you get this vitamin? Etc. Etc. That's the reason why conservatives, when they go vegetarian, or one of the reasons that conservatives, when they're vegetarian, are less likely to stick at being vegetarian, is because their friends are less likely to be vegetarian. So, you know, you need support. But you know, a lot of the book is saying you can make these individual choices. Now, at some point, government should come in and make much easier the choices for people to move away from meat. But I feel at this stage, what matters is some individuals showing the way and really creating an area for government to act in. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you highlight a little bit in the book is the intellectual shift that's going on in the background. And I hadn't realised, for example, the significance philosophically of Peter Singer's work to perhaps change, at least in universities and philosophy faculties, the way that people think about the relationship between humans and animals. Yeah, Peter Singer, I think, has written the most influential work on animal well-being. In 1975, he published Animal Liberation. He wrote that in Oxford, and actually Britain has been at the heart of a lot of thinking around the treatment of animals over the past 200 years. You know, it was here that the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty for, for Animals, now the RSPCA, was formed, and that led to similar societies in the US and elsewhere. Peter Singer, I think, has been enormously influential. For example, the CEO or the founder of uh, Whole Foods, uh, John Mackey, went vegan after reading Animal Liberation. You find lots of other people who are influenced by these works. And it's interesting to see that the revival, the growth of meat alternatives is driven by vegans. It's not aimed at vegans, but Impossible Foods, Beyond Meat, these companies which are providing a, an alternative to meat, they're founded by vegans. And I think it shows that, you know, a small percentage of the population, whether it's Peter Singer or Pat Brown, Evan Brown, founders of Impossible and, and Beyond, that they can have an outsized impact on the way we think and the way we act in our society. Yeah, I mean, I guess given the numbers you give, the data you give, this may not be as significant as I thought it was when I first encountered it. But I do remember going with my children to a burger joint and they're vegetarians and thinking, oh, we're in the wrong place. But suddenly there are now vegetarian burgers on the menu in a way that there weren't 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, Linda McCartney was a pioneer in her time. She and Paul went vegetarian in the 70s. But I think you're talking about a totally different style of product and taste now. You know, anyone listening to this who hasn't had a Beyond Burger or an Impossible Burger in the States, you know, go out and have one and really say whether the difference in taste is significant enough to justify the increased land use, the greenhouse gas emissions and the animal cruelty involved. Lab-grown meat actually is a very intriguing, initially slightly repulsive idea, but morally much more attractive. But is it going to ride to the rescue or is it still a very long way away? It's been approved for sale in Singapore. The problem has been pricing and indeed texture. 
So you can maybe make something close to a chicken nugget, possibly something close to a beef burger, if you can get the flavor right. But then replacing steak, which has obviously a very different feel and look on the plate as well, that seems to be some distance away. I personally think that our diets have changed. I mean, a century ago, basically nobody raised chickens for meat. Now it's the most popular meat in the US and the UK. So we've been moving away from red meat. And there are things you can eat. You know, mussels are very sustainable, probably don't feel pain. Oysters farmed exactly the same. And I think there is a role for lab-grown meat and indeed for products like the Impossible Burger. But I think we also have to be quite clear that it would be easier if people would take the chance to change their diet. And indeed, diets do change. I guess, though, we are probably talking about a niche development in the West. I think that's right. And I think we talk a bit about peak meat in reference to the US and Europe, where we already consume you know, much more protein than we need to and a lot more from animal sources than is recommended. And around the world, there's a different picture of increasing consumption, leading to, I think, some pretty bad practices of illegal fishing and keeping pigs in similar conditions to they are in the West in very intensive farms. China has gone from having small pig farms to having kind of six and seven storey buildings where pigs will never go outside. And I think a lot of people will feel uncomfortable about that as they do about farms in the Western world. I think, however, you know, historically, meat eating has been a global phenomenon. The idea of British power and British influence, which led to the rise of meat eating in India, obviously Emperor Meiji in Japan in the 19th century, looked to the West and said, well, let's get meat on the menu in Japan, where Buddhist influence had led that to be prescribed. So I do think that a lot of people around the world are looking at diets in the West still and saying, you know, what's normal? And the fact is that meat eating and dairy is very normal in the West. And that if it changes here, well, it may, it may easily change around the world. One of the things that I, I was going to say I enjoyed about the book, but actually I didn't enjoy it in a moral sense, was that you sort of take our excuses away for people like me who say, well, I don't want to eat factory farm chicken or pigs that have been horribly maltreated in their lives. But then maybe there's I think they even have in the butchers, you know, happy pigs that you're eating or fish is okay, isn't it? And you basically say, well, no, it isn't. Yeah, I didn't set out in the book to go to the worst places in the UK or around the world and to see real abuse. It's not a book that is intended to shock or or depress you in that way. I, I try and look at places which are representative or even actually towards the better end and to say, look, if we did livestock farming right, is it something we'd be particularly comfortable with? And I think... You know, once we understand that animals have social lives that, like us, they, you know, especially mammals, they probably value taking choices. That probably gives them a sense of satisfaction. That once you see what livestock farming involves in terms of forced impregnations, in terms of confined spaces, then I think even good farms start to feel quite uncomfortable. And suddenly fish, the science suggests quite strongly, but not, not entirely conclusively, but that they do feel pain. And, you know, the fishing industry has basically very little regulation about humane killing of fish. You're talking about fish which suffocate out of the water, for example. And actually, if you go and ask your fishmonger, they will happily tell you this. So it's not entirely hidden. And of course, you know, vegetarianism relies on dairy. And dairy is, in many ways, less humane than beef. The greenhouse gas emissions are not quite as severe. They're still pretty bad from dairy. But if you think of the way dairy cows are kept, forcibly impregnated, 
in the US, they'll very often be inside. In the UK, actually quite a lot of dairy cows will not go outside. Then this is not a great life. And, you know, the cheese looks very appetizing on the plate. But personally, I got to a point where I couldn't stomach it. And I don't feel entirely deprived. You know, I feel like I want my kids to grow up in a world where they can feel comfortable with all the animals they see in their storybooks and that we've put some thought and some compassion into our treatment of those other species. What about the argument that actually you're almost going against human nature, that we're carnivores, we always have been, and maybe we should just get used to that? Well, Peter Singer would say, look, you know, throughout human history, there's been warfare and murder and and rape, and we don't think those are things that we should sustain. I think the argument I would point to is, if you look at our closest relatives or even our ancestors, they ate meat, but they certainly didn't eat it in the quantities we eat it. We've really come to rely on meat for a huge amount of protein. But I think more fundamentally, we are in a very different circumstances to our ancestors. You know, climate change, biodiversity loss are incredibly serious problems. The livestock industry accounts for about 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And it's just the sheer efficiency of plant-based products. So if you want to create 50 grams of protein, which is basically what you're recommended to eat a day, if you do that with peas, then you need less than two square meters of land. If you do that with cheese, then you need 10 times that amount. And if you do it with beef, you need 50 times. Now, if we're all going to fit on this planet and we're all going to have enough food, it's simply not sustainable to do it with beef and cheese. So rather than this being a case of the interests of humans against the interests of animals, you argue that I guess, in the long run, the two interests are the same. You know, it's a really sort of fascinating realisation we've come to, which is that we used to see ourselves as needing to exclude wolves and beavers and, and all these other animals from the land we lived in in order for it to be habitable for us. And, you know, there are some wild animals which do pose a threat and we do need to make some provision against. But basically, to keep this planet habitable, we can look at our interests and those of other animals as quite compatible you know, if we can maintain natural habitats in a good state, well, that provides good mitigation against climate change, against flooding, against pandemics. And it's good for them and it's good for us. And I think that's much more the era we want to move into, the mindset we want to move into, is one where we're not constantly trying to eliminate other species out of some sense of competition. You suggest that towards the end of the book that we should attempt to set aside something like half the planet as conservation areas which struck me just initially when I read that figure as that's wildly unrealistic. Is it? The figure is slightly arbitrary, as you can guess, 50%. It comes from the biologist E.O. Wilson and others. But the staging post is 30% by 2030. And at the moment, we're below 20%. But the Biden administration, the Johnson administration in the UK, they've committed to that goal. The public support for that is very strong. It's 75% support in the US. And it would be a range of different levels of protection. These would be spaces, some of which people could go on holiday to, some of which people might be able to go hunting in, and others of which would really have as little human presence as possible, and others of which would be indigenous lands. It can only really happen if we stop expanding and indeed reduce the agricultural frontier. And that means moving away from meat. But I think the choices we have between continuing to eat meat and protecting some of these species that we find so beautiful, desirable to have on our planet and inspiring. And for me, it's quite a simple choice between, you know, getting my protein somewhere else 
and still having the rainforests, the great mammals of Africa and, and elsewhere. You know, I, I, see a, I see a simple choice. But is the choice really that simple? Because again, the places you cite which are committing to wildlife preservation or even the expansion of conservation areas are the West. But the population of Africa is going to double in 30 years, go from something like a billion to two billion people by 2050. And if that happens, essentially, I mean, lions, elephants, they don't have much of a future, do they? I think that's, uh, you know, it's a really sobering prospect. And this is really at the heart of the book. I wanted to know what the world would look like for my kids. You know, if we continue with our current diets, then we're going to need cropland and pasture land of about twice the size of India or nearly twice the size of India by 2050. But you can't magic that out of nowhere. That would have to come from forests and grasslands being lost. I don't think we can tolerate that as a prospect. So what we have to do is to make it profitable for countries in Africa, countries in Asia, countries in Latin America, not to cut down forests and grassland. And that may be through direct transfers of cash. It may be through tourism or hunting fees. But it has to happen because it's in the world's best interest. It's in humanity's best interest for those wild spaces not to be lost. Another thing we can do is dramatically increase investment in alternative proteins so that people in Africa with rising incomes don't have to turn to very inefficient forms of meat, but can get a similar taste through whether it's lab-grown meat or other alternatives to beef and sheep meat. But I think more broadly, the point is that if there's demand for meat and fish and grain from elsewhere in the world, it means that we in the West cannot continue to consume much more of it. You know, we can't continue to fish the waters off West Africa. We can't continue to import huge amounts of soy from South America to feed our livestock. And we can't continue to increase our greenhouse gas emissions. So to finish, I sense speaking to you and reading the book that you are struggling to be optimistic. But I just feel that although you're tracing a change in mentality that is happening, it's not happening fast enough. I think that's right. And I think what I would say is, every little bit counts. You know, every bit of rainforest we can save, every bit of forest we can regrow in the UK and in, in the US, we're facing real environmental threats. And I think the more species we can save for our children, the more satisfied we will feel ourselves. There's no threshold at which we lose. We're simply in a very difficult situation and changing our diets is really the minimum we can do to alleviate these problems. That was Henry Mance, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be able to join us again next week. You can find the show in all the usual podcast apps. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. 
The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Enjoy.